Hello, hey, hi, producer Alex here. You're listening to This Is Hell, Staff Picks Edition. Uh, your radio host and mine, Chuck Mertz, is still out recovering from massive intestinal chaos and making his way through the $200 worth of weed gummies I dropped off from the other week. Uh, but he's at the doctor today, hopefully getting some good news about his guts and the future of the show. So keep your fingers or your diverticula crossed for him. In the meantime, I'm here at the studio on a Monday morning. I walked in and found the main room of this space uh, covered with empty Gatorade bottles, alcoholic Arnold Palmer cans, and whole wheat garden salsa sun chips. Uh, must have been a weird Passover up here. Uh, so I have an old favorite to play for you today, uh, plus a new hangover cure, a new rotten history from Ronaldo, and oh, a question from hell. Once I think of a good question from hell, hopefully in the next, uh, how long do I have for this? 40 minutes. I got 40 minutes to come up with a question from hell for Tuesday. Okay. Hangover cure sent this way, sent my way via Chuck. Today's hangover cure is snap peas. The Irish website, DublinLive.com ran a story prior to this past Easter weekend with the headline, wacky hangover cures to help mend you this Easter bank holiday weekend from pickle juice to mass. We have you sorted. While we've already suggested the classic hangover cure of pickle juice, which many of our listeners swear by, we're not about to tell you to go to Catholic Mass, as Dublin Live suggests you do if you need a specific religious experience to get over drinking too much the night before. Well, that's on you. However, the article also suggested snap peas, stating before you go to sleep at after a night out, eat a lot of sugar snap peas and drink a full glass of water. We don't know why, but it works. Uh, then Chuck found a BuzzFeed story from 2018, which made the same claim about snap peas. That article was entitled, 18 Hangover Cures That Seem So Wrong Yet So Right, Don't Knock It Till You Try It. And in a spectacular piece of investigative reporting, writer Marit Telling explains, we ask readers to send us their weirdest and most low-key brilliant hangover cures. Here's what they said. Telling then quotes the that Andrea Devison submitting that after a night of drinking, before you go to sleep, eat a lot of sugar snap peas and drink a glass full of water. Every time I've done this, I've never had a hangover. That makes this week's thoroughly investigated hangover cure uh, via both Dublin Live and BuzzFeed, so uh, go figure, eating snap peas and drinking water before passing out. How are you doing? Okay, it's interview time. Uh, Sebastian, Dan, Lindsay, and I all have picks this week. Jeff has a new moment of truth. And we, uh, if you have an interview that you want to hear, if you want everyone else to listen to again, let me know. Kilter got in touch last week asking us to replay Chuck's deeply bleak 2016 interview on climate change. And that's what I'm doing next week. But today, this one's for me. Political theorist Jody Dean explains why today's left mired in self-denial and end-stage identity politics 
could use post-Occupy discontent around economic inequality to construct a revolutionary party, one that mobilizes individuals to form a collective with the goal of building a new communist society over the ruins of capitalism. All right, I'll get behind that. Here's Jody Dean for 2016. If you want to get in touch with Chuck to wish him well, say hi, see how he's doing, check in with him, chuck at thisishell.com or find him on Facebook and get in touch with us. If you want Alex at thisishell.com, Seb at thisishell.com. If you want stuff you want played over the next few weeks until we're back at it with live shows and Chuck's tummy's all mended up. All right, in the meantime, here's Jody Dean. God bless. This is hell. Real change, the kind of change that Occupy Wall Street had hoped to start, can be achieved through, I know you're going to find this hard to believe, through a political party. I know I found it hard to believe until I read Jody Dean's book, Crowds and Party. Jody's here to explain to us how the political party can bring about real change. Welcome to This Is Hell, Jody. Hi, thanks. Great to have you on the show with us. This is a fascinating book, and i got to tell everybody that this is uh, so... uh, densely written, that there's no way that we're going to be able to get to every point that you bring up in this book. And this is a really, really important book for people to read, especially if you were involved in Occupy, whether it's here in Chicago and Oakland and Occupy Wall Street, wherever you were involved in an Occupy group, this is a book that you should definitely read. And that start. let's start with Occupy. What to you explains the impact that, let's say, the Tea Party had on Republicans relative to the impact that Occupy seems to have had on the Democratic Party. All of a sudden, there were Tea Party Republicans. There weren't Occupy Democrats. Right. That's a good point. Um, So the Tea Party took as its target not just the country as a whole or not even the Democrats or not even the administration, but the Republican Party, right? They decided that their goal was going to be to influence the political system by getting uh, representatives, by having people elected, by making, basically by trying to take over part of government. So that's why they were able to have um, good effects. They didn't say, oh, the mainstream... um, political process is something that's too distant from our concerns. It's got to be something that we seize. The problem with um, many, but not all, but many leftists um, in the U.S. in particular, and we saw this after Occupy, is that they think that the political process is so corrupted that we have to just completely refuse it and leave it all together. So even recently, there was an article, and uh, unfortunately I forgot the name of the author, um, just in the last couple of days, where someone was criticizing Bernie Sanders for taking over some of Occupy's message, when in fact what they should be doing is being excited that Occupy's message is so powerful that it's going into um, the mainstream process and starting to change it. So I think the major difference has been that the Tea Party um, decided to act as an um, organized militant uh, force. And too much of the U.S. left, and we saw this in the wake of Occupy, has thought that to be militant means to refuse and disperse and become all fragmented into doing all sorts of little things. So what explains the left turning its back 
on that kind of collective action of a political party. It would seem like a political party would fit into what the left would historically want to do, uh, having an apparatus that can get their collective action together and organize it so it can move forward. Um, yeah, that's the, um, you know, that's the important um, consideration. So I think there are multiple things. Um, first, I would say the fear of success. The left has learned in a good way um, about learned from the excesses of the 20th century where communists and socialist parties succeeded um, and um, there were, um, you know, there was violence and purges and repression. And the left has taken that success to, um, to mean that we should not ever have a state. And I think that's the wrong answer. I think that we made a mistake in some regimes, right? We as the left made a mistake with some regimes, um, does not have to mean that, okay, we can never learn and have to retreat from the state altogether. So one reason the left has turned its back is because of the historical experience of, um, of state socialism. Another reason that the left has turned its back on the party form or on using a political party has been the real um, important and good criticisms of, of 20th century parties that have been um, too white, too masculine, potentially homophobic, um, parties that have operated in intensely hierarchical fashion. So those criticisms are real. But rather than saying, okay, so now we have to have a party that is not going to be repressive and that's not going to um, um, exclude or um, diminish people on the base of sex, race, and sexuality, people think, oh, well, we can't have a party form because that does that. And so that's another mistake. So I think we've got at least two um, historical problems that have made people very reluctant to um, use the party. I also think that um, whether or not you mark it as 1968 or 1989, that this kind of left embrace of cultural individualism and um, the end of discipline and the kind of free flow of personal experimentation has also made the left critical of discipline and critical of collectivity. Um, but I think that was just primarily a capitalist sellout, right? That that's going in a direction with the do of the dominant culture and saying, oh, yeah, everybody really should just do their own thing. And that's what it is to be a leftist. And there's been a kind of blindness about that as actually not a left position at all, but um, a kind of, you know, just sort of lifestyle embrace of the dominant ideology. So uh, does identity politics then, does that undermine collectivism and did that end up leading to fragmentation and a weakening of the left because you know there are a lot of people we've had on the show you know, just for one person in particular uh, Thomas Frank who says that there is no left in the United States did that did identity politics lead to such a fragmentation and a weakening of the left that we can have that kind of perspective um, first, I want to say that um, I disagree with the claim there is no left right in fact I think that the left is that group that keeps denying its existence, right? We're always saying, like, <laughs> like we're the ones who don't exist, but the right 
totally thinks that we're exist that we exist. I mean, what's so fantastic, actually? I think. Did you see this? Like the New York Post, I think. Um, I think it was the Post was screaming that um, Bernie Sanders is really a communist, um, which is kind of great. Like they're really still afraid of communists, and it's the left who say, "Oh no, you know, we're not there at all." So I think that that's wrong. That the left doesn't exist. I think the problem is that the left has. Um, put itself in a position where it denies its own existence, it denies its own collectivity. Now, is identity politics to blame? Maybe um, what we maybe it's better to say that identity politics is a symptom of the way that the limits of the, the way, that identity politics identity politics has been a symptom of the pressure of of capitalism and particular the capitalist formation in the U.S. back on the left. So capitalism has operated in the U.S. by exacerbating racial differences. Those have to be addressed um, on the left, and the left has been addressing that, but we haven't been addressing it in a way that's recognizing how racism operates to in, um, to support capitalism. Instead, we've made it too much about identity rather than about the um, rather than as an element in trying to build collective solidarity. So, I'm I'm trying I'm trying to go I'm trying to go away around this that says that identity politics has been important, but now it's reached its limits. Right, identity politics can't go any further um, because it, insofar as it denies the impact of capitalism. So an identity politics that just rests on itself is nothing but liberalism, right? Like trying to have capitalism with a human face. Like, oh, all of a sudden something will be better if um, black people and white people are equally exploited. What if black people and white people say, no, we don't want to live in a society based on exploitation. So I think identity politics now we've recognized in the last 20 years has come up against its limit and we can go back and now reconstruct a better left. So does what you were saying that the left denies its own collectivity uh, collectivity yeah. is that only in the US is that unique to US the US culture of the left Oh I that's a, I think that's a really important question and I'm not sure I've been um in the last like my my book right before this one was called the communist or still is it's called the communist horizon and I gave um, talks related to this book all all over the place, like in Moscow and St. Petersburg and um, Budapest and Athens, so all sorts of different places. And I see two different things. I see on the one hand um, a kind of broad left discussion that is um, in part mediated through social media um, and has and, and is pretty generational, right? Like like um, people in their 20s and 30s or younger, and that that there's a, a general feeling among all of these uh, uh, that I see in every place about the problem of collectivity, the problem of building something with cohesion, um, the problem of. Um, um, or shouldn't we actually just um, emphasize multiplicity? And you see this everywhere. Like everybody worries about this. Or that's what I what what I've seen. On the other hand, there are countries um, whose political culture is much more um, uh, yeah, it, it has much more embraced parties and are and 
fights politically through parties, like Greece, for example. Um, and we've seen the ups and downs with Syriza over the last two years. And Spain also, I mean, I think in some ways that um, the, the European context, because they have a parliamentary system where small parties can actually get in the mix and have a, um, a political effect in ways that our two-party system excludes, um, lets there be more um, enthusiasm and use of the party as a, as a form for, for politics. But there's still um, a lot of disagreement on the far left about whether or not the, you know, the party form is useful and should we, in fact, retreat and have multiple actions and artistic events and, um, you know, the whole ultra-globalization framework, right? That's still kind of alive in a lot of places. And you mentioned Syriza, and I would also mention Podemos, and Podemos is another left-leaning party. They ended up third in the recent parliamentary election, but that was they got far more seats than anybody expected them to. They've already come up with a way in which they can implement their type of democracy through this these circles that they do. But as you were saying, that was going to be my question, if the structure of the U.S. is one that doesn't allow for a political party to necessarily be the solution for a group like Occupy. So does the two-party system system, uh, make it so difficult for a third party to come into power that that's one of the reasons maybe that activists dismiss the party structure as something that could help them move forward their agenda? Um, I want to I answer that, but I also want to say something about the Podemos. You know, I'm, Podemos says that it's neither left nor right. Um, and I am, I, I'm actually kind of skeptical about putting them in the same basket of left parties because of their explicit statement that we are not left or right. And I think that they're a kind of populism. And so I'm um, a little wary of, of embrace a pop of Podemos, especially because there are, and now I, I can't remember the names, but I know there are a couple of other um, really active and interesting left parties that are doing pretty well over there. So I wanted to say that next thing about the, um, the U S system. All right, so we've got, like, we can think about the Black Panther Party as another neat example in the U.S. context, right? A party who was operating not primarily to win elections, but to galvanize social power. And that's an interesting way of thinking about what else parties can do in um, the U.S. Um, we can think about parties in terms of local elections. Um, you know, the uh, and um, socialist alternative has been doing really neat work all over the country um, in um, organizing around local ele- local elections. Um, you know, people who are socialist candidates, not within a mainstream party. So I think that um, that even as we come up against the limits of a two-party system, we can also say, okay, so maybe that lets us think better about local and regional elections that we, and, and what's so interesting, right, is that, you know, the left always likes to say this old sob of, you know, think globally, act locally, but, the, and then at the, in the same breath, it rejects parties, even though political parties um, are historically forms that do that, right, that actually scale, that operate on multiple, on both multiple levels as organizations. So I think that we don't have that. I think, yeah, it makes sense that um, as an excuse why people haven't um, used um, you know, left parties very well, 
Um, in the U.S., we have a two-party system, but um, it doesn't have to be the case. Oh, and, and one more thing on that. I mean, um, you know, there is a ton of sectarianism on the far, um, in the far-left parties that exist, right? They've, many still fight battles that were, you know, originally in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and haven't let that go. And that has to change, right? If, I mean, there's, we don't need that kind of sectarian purity right now. We are speaking with Jody Dean. She is author of Crowds and Party, wherein she answers the question, how do we move from the inert mass to organized activists? Jody is professor in the political science department at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. Jody has also held the position of Erasmus Professor of the Humanities in the Faculty of Philosophy at Erasmus University in Rotterdam. You mentioned how you are you were at uh, Occupy Wall Street. You write about being there on October 15th, 2011 as the massive crowd filled New York's Times Square. And you mentioned this one young speaker, and he addresses the crowd. They're deciding if they should be, move on to Washington Square Park or not from Times Square because uh, they need to go somewhere where there are better facilities like bathroom facilities. And you then quote the speaker saying, we can take this park. We can take this park tonight. We can also take this park another night. Not everyone may be ready tonight. Each person has to make their own autonomous decision. No one can decide for you. You have to decide for yourself. Everyone is an autonomous individual. Did individualism, that kind of individualism, kill Occupy Wall Street from the start? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean, a lot of times I blame the um, the rhetorics of consensus and horizontalism, um, and but I think that those have been rooted in an individualism that says we uh, that says politics has to let each individual have their own voice and must begin with each individual's statement regarding themselves, their interest, their experience, their positions, um, and so on and so forth. And what then starts to happen is as collectivity forms, you know, even if it, you know, which is not easy when everyone's beginning from their individual position, then people start looking for, well, how is my exact um, experience and interest not recognized here? So in the Washington Square Park example, it could be something like, well, you know, we're students here at NYU and we have an exam tomorrow, so another night's going to be better for us to occupy the park. Or, you know, that kind of thing. That's a little bit unfair, but, um, but that's the kind of example I have in mind. So I think that the left has given in too much in this assumption that politics begins with an individual, but that's a liberal assumption, right? Leftists historically begin with the assumption that um, politics begins in groups. And for the left in the 19th and 20th centuries, this group is, is class. Right, that class is what's determining um, what, where our political interests are coming from. And so what I try to do in the book, particularly in the first couple of chapters, is do everything I can to dismantle the assumption that politics, particularly left politics, should begin with an individual. Um, instead, I want people to start thinking about how the individual is a fiction and a really oppressive fiction at that, and one that's actually conveniently falling apart um, in our current um, you know, 
um, setting of of media and politics and inequality. The establishment media, if you will, uh, have said that Occupy Wall Street was a complete failure. I have said on this show that it wasn't a failure in that it has motivated some to work in activism, to change the narrative and the media message. It got people to talk about the disparity of wealth and the concept of the 1% and the 99%. How is that not having, how does that make that movement not a success? Because I believe that it wasn't a success, but there are these things that it did contribute to our culture. I th- you're completely right. It was absolutely a success, right? I mean, I, and, and I, I actually think the clear, I think, well, there are two, like, absolute, completely clear successes about, about it. Um, the very first one is it made economic inequality the center of politics in the U.S., and it's been that way since Occupy, right? Everyone says that this is the most important issue, is economic inequality. We would not have the opening of Bernie Sanders without um, Occupy Wall Street. So I think it was a huge success. The second thing is it let people realize, like, oh, my God, folks are willing to come out on the streets endure all sorts of awful, inclement um, conditions for economic inequality, you know, to fight economic inequality. People are willing to protest. People are willing to gather in crowds, and they want to do this. So, you know, the left has been sort of kind of so miserable for so long that it was a huge wake-up call, like, wait a minute, you know, folks want to act. Folks want to protest. Folks want to change things. So I think that this... um, opening um, is one that's still there and that we need to keep, um, you know, we need to keep pushing. But I think that that was the success of the movement. The, and all political movements um, go have, um, you, know, they, you know, step forward, step back, successes, failures, turn around in on themselves. It's never going to be um, a completely clear line, like some kind of, you know, football game moving down the field. It's really different. So I think that um, the important thing with Occupy is it's an opening it said that that left messages are important in the in the country, and now it's the opportunity to now we have the opportunity as leftists to try to consolidate this and make it something stronger. And that's what I think we need to do by thinking again about the party as a political form. Right? Stop thinking in terms of this particular action or this particular issue or this particular campaign, but begin thinking more about how do we pull these together. Um, in a party, even a revolutionary party, how can we do that? You write about uh, having this opening and then not having the con- continued momentum, if you will, uh, when it comes to Occupy Wall Street. But you also mentioned that the party could add that momentum. That's that's one of the things that parties can do. That structure of the party can continue that momentum and keep that opening Alive, But when you say the party uh, might be the answer and the solution for some of the things that Occupy wanted to have done, you, I want to make sure that people understand, you don't mean the Democratic Party because a lot of the criticisms that were coming from the Democrats during Occupy Wall Street was because it was a month before the November elections in 2011. They were saying, if you really want to make a change, go down to the Democratic Party headquarters and you go down there and volunteer. And that's how you really make change in this country is through electoral politics. So when you say that the party could be a solution to the to, uh, for Occupy, do you mean the Democratic Party? Can that be the space and can they create the space and opening and nourish the momentum in order to make a social movement become something more? Okay, so that's a, 
that's a, I've got a lot of layers on this question. So my first um, answer is I, when I, throughout the book, I really mean the Communist Party. Um, my friends tend to call this Jody's, Jody's Fantasy Party or Jody's Revolutionary Party in a kind of joke because the kind of Communist Party that's functioning as the, my model in there may not really be real or it may have only existed for like you know a year and a half in Brooklyn in the 30s or something like this. But, but my idea is to think in terms of what, how can we imagine the Communist Party as, again, a force? And so I don't mean the real existing Communist Party in the U.S. now, which still exists and basically endorses Democrats, um, but what it could be like if all of our um, left activist groups and um, small sectarian parties actually decided to come together in a new kind of radical left party. And I hope that um, some of your listeners will like create the logos for that, which would be really neat. And I like that <laughs> you announced like no fist. That's hilarious. Um, anyway, so, so the first thing is I don't env- envision the Democratic Party as that. That's not at all what I have in mind throughout the book. I'm really thinking of um, a radical left party and to which... Um, Elections are incidental, right? They might be means for organizing. But really, I mean, the goal isn't just being elected. The goal is overthrowing capitalism, right? The goal is having, is, is being able to build a communist society as capitalism crumbles. So, so that's the, the kind of first pass. Um, second, it can be the case as a matter of tactics on the ground in particular context that working for a Democratic um, candidate might be useful. It can be the case that trying to take over a um, local Democratic committee in order to get um, communist, socialist, radical left candidates elected could also be useful. But I don't see the goal as at all as taking over the Democratic Party. I think that, that that's way too limited a goal, and it's, that's a goal that presupposes the continuation of the system we have rather than um, its overthrow. But uh, how difficult, or maybe more accurately, uh, but using worse grammar, uh, how impossible <laughs> would it be for a Communist Party to emerge disconnected from the, its past association with the Soviet Union? Can we even use the word communist, or is it so taboo it's impossible for it to be used with any success whatsoever? Um, what, what we have to do is recognize that the right is still scared of communism. That means that it's still powerful. That means that the term still has a kind still has the ability to install fear in its enemies. So I think that's an argument for keeping it. What's amazing, so if you take one so I think that's an argument for keeping communism. It's also amazing that what was it like something like forty two or fifty two or whatever percentage of, of Iowa delegates um, or Iowa participants in the caucuses um, say that they are socialists? Four or five years ago, people would say, oh, no, socialism is dead in the U.S. No one can even say that. So I actually think holding on to communism is useful because our enemies are worried about communism. I also think holding on to communism helps make the socialists seem really, really mainstream and that that's good. Right? We don't want socialism to seem like something that only happens in Sweden. We want it to seem like that's what America should have at a bare minimum. So... Um, so 
But oh, and then the last thing about the history of communism. I um, yeah, I guess I think every, you know, every political um, every every political ideology that has infused a state form has done awful things, and for the most part. If people like the ideology, they kind of let the awful things slide, or they use the ideology to criticize the awful things that the state does. So I think we can do the same thing with communism. Is that yes, you know, communist? Um, they I mean actually the, the the countries that have claimed them to be ruled by communist parties were never really communist. They didn't they didn't even claim to achieve communism. But we can say that yes, state socialism made these mistakes, and insofar as it made these mistakes, it was. Um, betraying communist ideals that it, that any communist society would have to hold up. So I don't think that we need to um, abandon these terms or come up with new ones. I think we need to use the power that they have. And I also think people, and people recognize this, which is what makes it exciting. When you write about the protests that are happening around the world, you write, some contemporary crowd observers claim the crowd for democracy. They see in the amassing of thousands of democratic insistence a demand to be heard and included. In the context of communicative capitalism, however, the crowd exceeds democracy. You add, in the 21st century, Dominant nation states exercise power as democracies. They bomb and invade as democracies for democracy's sake. International political bodies legitimize themselves as democratic, as do the contradictory entangled media practices of communicative capitalism. When crowds amass in opposition, they poise themselves against democratic practices, systems, and bodies to claim the crowd for democracy fails to register this change in the political setting of the crowd. So are crowds today, are the protesters today, then opposed to democracy? Democracy, or are they opposed to the current state of, let's say, representative democracy? Let's think about um, our basic um, environment, right? In our basic environment, and by our now I mean um, basically English-speaking people who use the Internet and are listening to the radio and exist in societies um, um, like um, like the United States. So in our environment, what we hear is that we live in democracies. We hear this all the time. We hear that, you know, that, that networked media makes democratic exchange possible, that a free press is democracy, that we've got elections, that that's democracy. Um, we've got a sense of a democratic milieu that we are in. When crowds amass in this setting... If they are just like at a football game, no one's going to, that's not a political statement. If they're even at just a march that says, um, that's kind of like a fully permitted march, um, that's kind of saying, okay, we're registering our opposition to this invasion of Iraq, or we want to say that we care about the climate. Um, All of those things are within the general um, environment of democracy. And there's no, they don't say anything, they don't oppose the system. They're not registering as an opposition to the system. They're saying that we want our view on this issue to count. I think that the ways that crowds have been amassing over the last four or five years, and these Occupy Wall Street is an example, but the um, Red Square um, debt movement in Canada would be another example. Some of the more militant um, strikes of nurses and teachers are also good examples. Um, that we, when we see these crowds emerging, 
They're saying, look, the process that we have that's been called democratic, it is not. We want to change that. So I think that it's not a matter about, about it's not like we are anti-democratic. It's that democracy is too limiting a term for, to register our opposition. We want something more. We want actual equality. Democracy is too limiting. So, I mean, democracy as a name for the ideals and practices. And the reason it's too limiting is because we live in a context that understands itself as democratic. So democracy as a political claim cannot register, as I say in my language, it can't register the gap that the crowd is inscribing. It can't register real division or opposition. It's just democracy is just like more of what we have. So I think the crowds do more than just say, oh, yeah, what we have is fine. You write about what all of these protests have in common, and I apologize, I don't have the gentleman's name in my notes. You quote a computer scientist, author, a composer, Jaron Lanier, what's his name? Oh, um, yeah, it's um, Jaron Lanier. Right, right, Jaron Lanier. I thought that was what his name was, uh, where he says, uh, he writes, we've decided not to pay most people for performing the new roles that are valuable in relation to the latest technologies. Ordinary people share while elite network presences generate unprecedented fortunes. Then you add, this is the real face of the knowledge class. That is to say, the proletarian, uh, proletarianized people producing the information, services, relations, and networks at the core of communicative capitalism, what others sometimes refer to as the knowledge economy or information society. They make more and get less, intensifying inequality with every communicative uh, contribution and its trace. A 2014 World Economic Forum report puts it bluntly. The greater the role that data play in the global economy, the less the majority of individuals will be worth. How much do you think protesters and all of these different protests that are happening around the world, whether they're against uh, austerity, whether they're protests for Black Lives Matter, how much do you think the protesters are aware that in the big picture, this is what the protests are about. Um, I, uh, let's see, that's an interesting thing. So what are, I'm wondering how to think about awareness, right? Does awareness mean be able to um, articulate in a kind of reflective, abstract fashion? Or does awareness mean kind of feel in the gut that things are getting worse and worse and that... Um, their position has been sinking and, and, and blocked. I don't know how many would fit in either side of those, you know, which one, like the ab- abstract articulation or the feel-in-the-gut version, but I expect that the vast majority would fit in some version of one of those two or the spectrum in between them. So I guess I think that, yeah, that folks realize that, wait a minute, um, the, there's, what is it, 64 um, billionaires in the world who own more than um, 40 or 50 percent of the people in the world? But the people know this, and they feel this, and they feel their protests as a way of coming out and saying, this cannot continue. So I think, and I think that we realize, and that more and more people realize that um, we share and others take. I mean, that's what Mark... Zuckerberg's life is based on. He takes what we share. Right? Same thing with Google, same thing with um, Amazon. They take what we share. So I think this is becoming um, more and more apparent, and that's one of the things that makes um, the kind of 
class struggle of the proletarianized today ever more exciting. So I guess I've got one last question. For, oh, no, I want to ask you this uh, first. So what explains to you then, er, 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 we are so, and I, I don't use the word dependent, but what the hell, we are so dependent. We <laughs> use we use social media so much. We use Facebook so much. We use so many of these avenues of what you call communicative capitalism so much. Uh, how can we shun this system without hurting ourselves or our ability to communicate our message to each other? I mean, can we just go on strike? Can we be the owners of the production again? Um, you know, the, the one of the um, one of the ways that Marxism historically has understood the political problem faced by workers is our total entrapment and embeddedness in the capitalist system, right? So that what makes a strike so courageous is that workers are in some ways shooting themselves in the foot, right? They're not earning their wage for a time as a way to put pressure on the, um, you know, the capitalist owner of the workplace. So then the question is, all right, if that's why how strikes worked is we saw the kind of bravery that people would willing to um, bring to their struggle for um, a better workplace condition. What does that mean under communicative capitalism? Does it mean that we have to shoot ourselves in the foot by completely extracting ourselves from all of the instruments of communication? Or does it mean that we change our attitude towards communication? Or does it mean that we develop our own means of communication? I think there, there's, a, there's a whole range here. I don't take the view, I'm not a Luddite, right? I don't think, oh, you know, the way you're going to bring down capitalism is by quitting Facebook. Like, I, I think that that's a little bit absurd. I think what, is, what makes more sense is to think, okay, how do, we, how do we use the tools we have to bring down the master's house? And this can be, we can consolidate um, our message together. We can get a better sense of how many we are. We can develop um, common modes of thinking. We can distribute our new, um, the new image or logo for the Revolutionary Party. So I think that we can do those things, but we have to realize that what we're doing is not, we're not increasing democracy, we're not participating in democratic debate, we're not trying to reach everyone, we're just using the tools available in order to um, strengthen our, um, to strengthen ourselves, to strengthen our association, to strengthen our revolutionary collective. So I I guess I want to say that I don't think that a kind of extractive approach to our situation in communicative media is the right one. I think more, it's got to be more um, tactical in thinking, how do we use the tools we have? And then how do we find ways to seize the means of communication, which would mean the, you know, collectivization of Google, Facebook, Amazon, and using those apparatuses. But that would probably, you know, have to be like day two of the revolution. Jody, I've got one last question for you. We've been speaking with Jody Dean. She is author of Crowds and Party, which asks the question, how do we move from the inert mass to organized activists? You can get the book at our website, thisishell.com. You click on the title of the book, it takes you directly to the publisher's webpage where you can purchase it directly from them. Jody is a professor in the political science department at Hobart and William Smith Colleges. One last question for Jody, for you, Jody, and as it is for each and every one of our guests. 
It's the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate the response. How much did the narrative that Occupy created of the 99% and the 1%, how much did that undermine any sense of collectivity? How much did it undermine? Yeah, because it doesn't include everyone. Oh, yeah. Okay. I, yeah, this is. A, it, I can see why it's the question from hell. Right. <laughs> so, um, like, okay. So, my answer is going to be that it. In fact, that in fact, the yeah. Oh, God, it's really hard to answer. Um, so, division is crucial. Collectivity is never of everyone. And so, in fact, it, what it did was produce the divided collectivity that we need. So it's great to undermine this kind of stupid myth that of, you, of American unity and, you know, the country has to pull together and the state of the union is strong and all of that crap, right? It's fantastic that Occupy Wall Street asserted collectivity through division, right? This is class conflict, right? This says... There is not a unified society. Collectivity is only the collectivity of us against them. So I think that it produced the proper collectivity as an antagonistic one, dividing the kind of unity, the myth of unity of the nation. That might be the best response and best question from hell I've asked in quite a while, Jody. I really want to thank you for playing along on this morning's show. (laughs) Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Jody, I really do appreciate it. This is a fantastic book. And like I said earlier, anybody who was involved in any of the Occupy movements across the United States or anywhere in the world, I really do think need to read your book. Jody Dean, again, author of Crowds and Party. Thanks so much for being on our show this week. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. You're listening to This Is Hell. That was Chuck's January 2016 interview with political theorist Jody Dean, author of the book Crowds and Party. I got that one at home. Uh, while you were listening to that, I sampled some of those whole wheat garden salsa sun chips. Uh, not bad. Skipped on the canned Arnold Palmers, though, and came up with a question from hell this week, which is, what are you trying to ban from schools? What are you trying to ban from schools? Leave your answer on Facebook or Twitter. Or email us, alex at thisishell.com. Uh, so stick with us. We're playing hits till Chuck recovers. Uh, more from Sebastian, Dan, Lindsay, and Jeff all this week and next week. Should have some news from Chuck shortly. Uh, so thanks for all the well wishes, books, emails, etc., etc., etc. It really means a lot to us. Oh, I got a new Ron history for you. And uh, this one's a journey, so get ready. Ron history for the week of Monday, April 18th, 2022 on... This day, April 18th, happy birthday to my friend Chris, who doesn't listen to the show. On April 18th, 1955, that was 67 years ago this week, at Princeton Hospital in New Jersey, the world-renowned physicist Albert Einstein died at the age of 78 of a burst aortic aneurysm. Although surgery might have extended his life, he refused it, remarking, it is tasteless to prolong life artificially. I've done my share and it is time to go. Einstein had stipulated that he did not want his body or his brain to be preserved or studied. Having grown weary of the cult of international celebrity that surrounded him, and knowing very well that it was all BS, he left instructions that his remains were to be cremated and the ashes scattered in a secret location. In this way, he hoped to prevent measurements of his brain tissue from being used to draw invalid conclusions about the nature of so-called genius. However, 
After Einstein died, doctors at Princeton did perform an autopsy, and the pathologist on duty, Dr. Thomas Stoltz Harvey, took it upon himself to remove the brain and keep it, along with the eyes, which he later gave to Einstein's eye doctor. Harvey did this without the consent of Einstein's family, though he later managed to arm-twist Einstein's son into giving him permission to keep the brain, on the condition that it would be used only for scientific study and not put on public display. Harvey soon lost his job at Princeton and moved to the University of Pennsylvania, taking Einstein's brain with him. There he cut it into more than 200 pieces, some of which he sent to other pathologists, while putting the rest in two mason jars of alcohol he kept in his basement. Harvey's wife was so creeped out by having Einstein's chopped up brain in her home that she threatened to throw the jars out. Uh, after they separated, Harvey moved from job to job around the country and finally lost his medical license after failing a competency exam. In the meantime, other doctors published studies on pieces of Einstein's brain that were largely dismissed as junk science, and by the 1990s, Harvey was living in Lawrence, Kansas, where he became friends with the famous author and medical school dropout William S. Burroughs. After Harvey died in 2007, the remaining pieces of Einstein's brain were sent to the National Museum of Health and Medicine near Washington, D.C., where they remain today. A few small pieces on microscope slides later went on public display at a medical museum in Philadelphia. Sorry, Einstein. That was Rotten History. Rotten History is written by Ronaldo Magaldi. Thank you, Ronaldo. Sebastian's live in the studio tomorrow with another fave. This week's Hangover Cure was Sugar Snap Peas, courtesy of Dublin Live and BuzzFeed. Sorry about that, folks. Uh, looking forward to coming back with more stuff, more new stuff. Uh, how many weeks from now? Three, four, five? Somewhere around then. All right. Thanks for sticking with us. Take care, everyone. See you tomorrow. Bye. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>